Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello, everyone. I'm Jan Barris, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the National Committee's podcast series. And today, we're talking to an old friend of the National Committee's, Professor Mark Fraser, who is a professor of politics at the New School for Social Research. So we're delighted to have him for that reason, but even more, we're delighted to have him because he is a member of the initial class of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program, which is a program near and dear to my heart because we gather together some of the best and brightest of well, in those days, it was the younger generation of China scholars. Mark has graduated a bit from that since he was in the founding class back in 2005. So it's been 14 years, which is quite extraordinary. Now, in those days, Mark, you were a professor that looked at sort of social issues like pensions and yes. those kinds of policies and how that made a difference or didn't in the lives of the ordinary Chinese people. You seem to have moved on from that to the really interesting subject of contentious politics uh, in two very different cities, but perhaps they're not as different as people might think. And you've chosen the two cities of Shanghai and Mumbai for your new book called The Power of Place. And we just want to spend a little time here, those who are sort of tantalized by this discussion can go on our website and see a much longer video of a program that Mark is about to do for an audience here at the National Committee in which he'll have a longer time to delve into some of these issues. But for the moment, I'm just curious, why did you choose these two cities and what made you actually turn to this subject matter? Yeah, well, first of all, Jan, thanks for having me. It's really delightful to be back here um, at the National Committee and to talk about this book. Um, I am, uh, I guess, I would say, since you just mentioned uh, when I became a PIP fellow, that uh, the, uh, the, I, my second book was on, indeed, um, titled Socialist Insecurity, looking at pensions and the really uneven quality of social policy in China. And I was so struck by the way in which migration to cities was making such a big difference in the way that the, the policymakers just couldn't keep up with expanding health care coverage, expanding pensions. And so uh, having looked at that migration pattern, the unevenness of really citizenship or social citizenship, you could call it, um, I, I was determined to, at the end of that book, I talk about, well, how does China look in comparison to other welfare states? And I uh, came up with this phrase of large, uneven developers. And other countries that have huge economies, vastly uneven in terms of economics and, and, and culture and geography, of course, and vast flows of migrations to large cities like Shanghai. And so that, that sort of pushed me in the direction of looking at India, of course, and I began my, my position at the uh, India-China Institute at the New School in 2012, and uh, thanks to lots of support from that institute, was able to carry out this comparative urban policy and urban contentious politics research project uh, over the last uh, really six years. 
uh, of that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, as you just alluded to, these uh, cities have some things in common, some things not so much in common. But one thing that I think in both, if you ask the average Chinese uh, about Shanghai, unless they're from Shanghai, but if they're not from Shanghai, they'll say that, uh, you know, Shanghai people and Shanghai, least patriotic, most capitalistic kind of culture, uh, you know, for better or worse, we have them uh, here. And, and, you know, there's the Shanghai model, of course, rapid urban development in, in the last 20 years. And the same thing really interestingly applies in India when you talk to people outside of Mumbai or Bombay, as it used to be called before 1996, uh, least patriotic, least nationalistic, most capitalist, most sort of also true of Shanghai, sort of poisoned or overly influenced by a century of colonial capitalism in the 19th century, century of humiliation, of course, in the case of China. And uh, I think what I'm trying to say in the book, uh, by looking at these episodes of contentious politics, of large-scale uh, protests uh, across the 20th century, is that in some ways they, both cities get a bad rap from their respective countries. That is to say, Shanghai was really important in the nationalist movement. There were many patriotic activities in the 20th century uh, in, in Shanghai, and uh, something that really doesn't get much attention, but in the 1950s and 60s, uh, contrary to the capitalist uh, uh, you know, sort of character and nature of Shanghai, that there was really some powerful socialist uh, policies, some, both, at the, the, of course, at the official level, but also at the popular level, uh, in terms of you know, equalizing incomes and, and distributing wealth albeit in a very coercive way in the case of Shanghai. In Bombay, the same kind of thing. There was uh, a Nehruvian brand of socialism that worked pretty well over uh, those, those two decades. And of course, now in the last, last two decades, the 1990s and, and the first decade of the 21st century, uh, both cities are, I think, globally as well as regionally in Asia, and of course, within their own countries, they're viewed as sort of the, uh, the leading spearheads of globalization and foreign capital flows and, and all that's good and bad that comes with that. Can you describe for me what you mean by contentious politics? Is that politics among people in each city with each other, like you know, de Blasio having contentious politics with the head of the city council person here? Or is it politics between the city and the state apparatus? Uh, contentious politics is a, a somewhat specialized term, at least in the in the field of political science. And and what it generally refers to is, I mean, of course, you could say all politics is contentious. Well, that's what my <laughs> and that's very is true. These days. But but uh, what what this uh, term is meant to to refer to is whenever um, a citizen uh, or someone who isn't even counted as a citizen, a person or a group of people, uh, is making a some kind of claim, a uh, legal claim, uh, could be a, a, a non, a, an extra legal claim, you know, uh, against any public authority. So it could be a mayor, it could be uh, a national official, uh, it could be a state official, uh, making a claim for, uh, you know, better housing, making a claim for access to public services, making a claim for school, uh, in any kind of, in, in this, especially in the case that I'm looking at with these, in the urban context, uh, contentious politics here refers to when uh, ordinary people uh, mobilize uh, to uh, collectively make a claim against, uh, the, in most cases, it's the city to uh, do something about the economy, do something about the, the conditions, uh, public services, et cetera. So it's generally, you're talking about people within the city having contentious issues with their 
um, public servants who are supposed to be helping them live their lives better, and they feel that may not be happening. Yes, and it, but but what's also talked about in the broader issue of contentious politics is the level of scale. So there could be there could be a, an, an urban protest that is just about uh, disaffection with things going on in the city, but there could be a protest which takes place in the city, but it's about uh, you know civil rights issues at the national level, um, of course. So that would also count as as contentious politics. And in the book. Some of these are at the municipal scale, and some are at uh, the national scale, and some of them are kind of combined. So given that you're talking about contentious politics in cities with two very different national forms of government, one a communist society, one a democratic society, I assume there are they present themselves as resolving these conflicts in different ways, or did you find that there are actually a lot of similar ways in which people in Shanghai would choose to resolve a conflict compared with people in Mumbai? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The institutional array of options for citizens of Shanghai today and citizens of Shanghai, uh, citizens of, of Bombay or Mumbai uh, today. Uh, are, are quite in contrast. Uh, but when it comes to, and I, I write about issues of, of uh, eviction and relocation, things like this, uh, it turns out that the democratic institutions available to citizens in Mumbai are less powerful and less effective uh, than we might think they are. And by contrast, the seeming lack of channels uh, for Shanghai residents to protest eviction and relocation, uh, there are clever strategies to use, uh, and I think most people who've read about urban China, and especially Shanghai in the last uh, 10, 15 years would know this, but uh, the, the strategies that are used by these uh, residents to uh, you know, prevent eviction or get better compensation when they are evicted uh, turn out to be more effective and, and more, uh, uh, more possibilities than you would think in a place where there are no elections, the media is controlled, the courts are controlled, et cetera. So it is a very, it's a different pattern of state-society relations, but at the ground level, when you look at it, it, it is still people doing the same thing, which is to resist uh, forcible eviction from the, the middle of the city as these land values in both places soar astronomically and demand uh, a form of compensation. Now, that's, that's the last couple of chapters. That's the last, uh, the part of the book that covers the last 20 years. If you go back, looking at 1919 and 1920s, the pattern of governance is remarkably similar. You have British-inspired models of governance in the International Settlement in Shanghai and in the Bombay Municipal Corporation in, in Bombay, of course, uh, that have remarkably similar kinds of institutions and similar kinds of grievances that are being brought before those institutions. That's interesting that you, I, I wouldn't have thought intuitively that Shanghai, whoops, uh, forms of government were inspired by the British because even though it was a treaty port and the Opium War was fought against the British, I somehow, when I think about Shanghai as an international city, I think about it in the context of the French concession. French concession, yes. Uh, and in my own sort of personal experience, because I'm Jewish and I've always been very interested oh, yeah. in Jewish immigration, so I think about you know the ghettos, etc. In Hong Kong, yes, in, in the in, international right. settlement. Yeah. So um, that's interesting that there was this borrowing from or reliance on absolutely the, the British. The British were, uh, you know, they they merged the British settlement was merged with the American settlement in mm -hmm. the 1860s, the and, and then so. becomes the international settlement, right. but. Most of the time over the next 80, 90 years, as wonderful work by people like Robert Bickers 
have shown, a historian of, of the British in Shanghai, uh, among other things, uh, is that, um, you know, that, that, yes, it was a multinational settlement, multinational governance in principle, but the British really ran the show in terms of staffing the police, in terms of, I mean, they, brought, they in fact, brought many Sikhs from India to uh, do the, you know, actual street-level policing, which is interesting. Uh, but in terms of, yeah, the governance and the, the setup and, and the um, sort of authoritarian, it's, this is an interesting resonance with today, you have authoritarian colonial-style governance, authoritarian in the way that limited voting and hardly, uh, hardly any representation for local Chinese in the international settlement, uh, but at the same time, a you know, very free market approach to land, to housing, to, to everything, to factories. Uh, and so that kind of resonates to me with today's model of authoritarian capitalism hybrid that we see, of course, the Chinese Communist Party practicing. So I hope you had a chance to do a lot of on-site investigation uh, while you yes. were doing this program? You got to spend time in both Shanghai and Mumbai? Yes. Uh, Shanghai Where's the better place? food? Oh, <laughs> that's difficult to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, I won't I will, push you yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, if, if people who are very fond of the hottest forms of Sichuan and Hunan food would, would enjoy some of a particular brand of Mumbai I'm sure. uh, food. But um, I would say, yeah, I mean, I, I did archival research for the earlier part of the 20th century and then the middle part of the 20th century. Uh, I, I, of course, relied on lots and lots of wonderful secondary sources, um, uh, his, histories uh, of, of either city that you could put on an entire bookshelf, and then many uh, field visits, yes, for the, for the talking about and researching the 90s and the, two, and the first uh, decade of the 21st century, um, field visits to, to not just the places in Shanghai had been before, you know, the, the old international settlement and the French concession, but the far peripheries out of these places that you're on the Shanghai subway for an hour and a half, two hours wow, before two you, hours. Get, you, you, you get to these, well, depending on the number of stops, right, you get to these, uh, these uh, you know, places where uh, people who used to live in the middle of the city are now living in 80 square meter apartments uh, very, very comfortably, but also having lost all their social uh, networks. And, and you can see the same thing happening in, really? in Mumbai. Yeah. So gentrification, moving people out of their own old communal structure of living in the same place yes. and having the same neighbors for friends for generations. For generations, That's yes. That's happening both places. Both places, absolutely. As it becomes too expensive for people to live in the middle yes. of the city. Yes, and, and interestingly, and this is also an old connection from the 1800s, is that both cities have these, I mean, the leading employer for, uh, for 100 years was the textile industry, and so you have these old uh, you know, mill-working families in both cities who live right smack dab next to the, the factory compound. And now as the, all of that gets gentrified, and they're, they're the ones being uh, spit to the, the far reaches of the, of the city. Where was it easier to do research? In, uh, intuitively, I would think Mumbai, but maybe that's not the case because I know the situation for NGOs in India is equally as tough or even tougher than it is in China these days. So did you have any problems in either place? And if so, how did those play themselves out? Well, it was, um, it was, it, it is challenging. It's not just for me. I mean, with, with the Indian case, and it's not just Mumbai, but uh, there are just as many there are a huge number of bureaucratic hurdles to get a, an actual proper research visa. So what, uh, uh, you know, I, I did get um, with all letters of permission from several places, including the U.S. consulate in Mumbai, to do uh, work in the ar archives in Mumbai, which are quite an interesting contrast. The Shanghai archives are 
completely digitized now and you sit at a computer and you, you tap this and tap that and print that and print this. Uh, but with the, the Mumbai archives, which are housed by the state level government, um, it's all the old paper and it's crumbling and it's, there's no air, there, at that time there was no air conditioning and it was really, uh, I mean, in fact, there was a piece in the New York Times about six or seven years ago talking about the, the sad state of these crumbling archives. But in terms of you know, personal access and sort of uh, the kinds of things we're talking about with China today in terms of repression of scholars doing work, it, it is not, not, ho- not there yet in India and I hope will not, will not be. Now, of course, if you tried to go to Kashmir or Northeast India and tried to do, this would be the same challenge as if you were attempting to go to you know, the sensitive parts of, of China, Xinjiang, and was Tibet. most of your work in archives, or did you also talk to people? It, 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 most of it was in archives. I would say half of it was in archives, and the other half was um, interviews with scholars, interviews with former officials, interviews, and, and, and following around NGO activists as they would make their rounds to go look at housing compounds or talk to families who were facing um, some kind of dispute over resettlement. And so... Um, I was in effect kind of shadowing them with their permission, of course, to, uh, and, and I didn't, you know, there was no particular case. I'm, I'm writing about a, a broad span of time. So there's no particular, I wasn't collecting the, the nitty gritty of any specific uh, relocation case, but getting a broad view of what it was like to be a, a textile mill family who, was, who had been re- relocated, or uh, as I was also taken to many um, informal settlement slums who were uh, also in the process of being rehoused in, moving from informal to formal uh, housing. And that was equally difficult or easy in both places? Um, it, was, the, it was... And the personal aspect. There. Yeah, the personal aspect, much harder in Shanghai, for sure, that's, still. That's yes, yes. Uh, and did you come across any instances where activists, social activists in each place knew of each other or were interested in each other's work or had any connections at all? In fact, I, I did. Well, in part, I mean, this is where I... mean, I, I don't want to say I, I, anything's going to no, in no, trouble. It's the, um, I mean, one of the, the, the projects that the India-China Institute has done is to try to you know, take, I'm thinking of one particular scholar who had done work in many informal settlements, uh, largely Muslim informal settlements in Mumbai, and we supported her for a month to do research and the... Um, uh, urban villages uh, in Beijing and Shanghai, and just just not not to make some systematic, comparative, detailed study, but just to get a sense of what it's like, uh, what, what a kind of equivalent is like, a rough equivalent is like in in a city in China. Um, so, I think your question is asking if there's any coordination by NGOs one to the other, and and I did, have not seen any any no, evidence. No, I, I that, didn't but, expect, given yeah. the two societies, yeah. and I didn't. But are they aware of and curious and interested in what others are doing outside their own? Oh, in the case of Mumbai, absolutely. I mean, the Shanghai is held up as this model that they want to emulate, and, and maybe to a fault. Um, and there are many, many exchanges so uh, with infrastructure consulting uh, Chinese companies coming to to Indian cities to uh, you know help give, give advice. Uh, well, not they're, they haven't allowed the construction okay. quite yet, but um, to help build or advise anyway. Um, I know of a, I heard someone was telling me about um, a water pollution mitigation project that was was drawing upon officials in China to come to Delhi to to do some. So there's all kinds of, of just even in urban all kinds of connections. Uh, back and forth uh, among officials and engineers and, and those sorts of groups.
Well, that's great. This has been a taste of what is an, a really interesting book, not just because of the comparisons that you make between the two, but, but for me, what I find really interesting is the historical comparisons and how you've you know, tied those together, which is really fascinating. So everyone should go out and get the book, The Power of Place, Contentious Politics in 20th Century Shanghai and Bombay by Mark Frazier, and watch our video for even more details. And uh, for the for our video, Mark will be interviewed, sort of, or the, the moderation will come not from me, who is a total neophyte in these issues, but from a colleague of his by the name of Wu Weiping, who's a professor at Columbia University, and who's also one of our PIP fellows, and who's a specialist in urbanization. So we'll ask much more thoughtful questions than I have, but we hope you will both join us for that and go out and buy Mark's terrific book. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks very much, Dan. You're welcome.